Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer, with support from the North Face. Never stop exploring. Dr. Squatch, get dirty, stay clean. Chorus, explore perfection. An element, restoring health through hydration. Alex, how would you describe your your aesthetic, your style? Well, do you mean style like fashion? In which case, I would say drab. <laughs> but uh, but if you mean style isn't climbing, I would say joyous. I don't know. I mean, just fun. Uh, do I even have a style? Maybe controlled. Can, People say I move with you know very static. Yeah. I don't know. I just remember reading about Barack Obama where he only owned three suits so that he never had to make a choice. You know, like it was like basically all mm-hmm. the same suit every day. And he's like, I will waste no time or no mental energy on picking this suit. Like it's on brand and I know it's going to be. Yeah, I, I actually do exactly the same thing. My style <laughs> is I have I have indoor clothes and outdoor clothes and they're always exactly the same for weeks on end and you don't have to wash them because your indoor clothes stay clean and your outdoor clothes stay dirty and you just, you know, when you go outside, you put on your outdoor clothes and that's it. I know you have the, the tuxedo that you wore at your wedding and at the Oscars, but do you have like, do you have date night clothes? Does that even come in? I literally don't own anything that wasn't <laughs> given to me by the North Face. <laughs> or maybe given to me by random friends along the way or like swag from events or something. But no, I, I can basically say that I've never spent any money on apparel because I just, why would you? It just seems crazy. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think if I had to describe your style though, like in general, if like there was an overlap, I'd be like pragmatic minimalist where <laughs> yeah, like, I don't yeah, exactly. know. You're like, oh, okay. actually, uh, no, my style is a uh, derelict. You know, you remember from, <laughs> from Zoolander, of course. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right on. Uh, so earlier this year, you and I were talking about Sean Villanueva O'Driscoll and Nico Favres and you made the point that you really liked their style and that sometimes you wish you were doing things in the way they were doing. And what about them intrigues you? Like, what about their style speaks to you? I just think they have the the purest style. They just go out and have big adventures. They do very hard things with very with minimal fuss. They they always show up, try their hardest, have an adventure, and have a good time doing it. Yeah. You know, it's just, I, I think it's the way all climbers wish they were, where you can just bravely face the unknown and do something totally badass in challenging circumstances with a smile the whole time. Yeah. You know, I don't know how you describe that, but they just, they make it look so easy. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny you, you described your own style as joyous, like your climbing style. And I actually think that's a really solid overlap is that that's how I would think of them as sort of joyous, like where they have all the instruments, they find the laughter and like re- tackling ridiculous things. Yeah. Though I think that what makes them so extraordinary is that they stay joyous in the face of storms in Patagonia. You know, like basically they go to places where other people would be inherently afraid and they still have a great time. They do jam sessions on the wall in Greenland in storms. You know, it's like they just, they're just always having a great time literally anywhere on earth. Like, you know, remote overhanging big walls in the tropics and jungles on glaciers. Like they're just always having a good time and always climbing their best. You're like, man, you guys can literally do it anywhere. Yeah. Today, we're going to talk about style in climbing, and that word can mean a lot of things. Joining us are Katie Lambert and Ben Ditto, who, Ben, coincidentally, just got back from an epic adventure with Sean and Nico. Will you give us a rundown on Ben and Katie, Alex? Katie and Ben are both lifetime climbers who have been climbing at a high level for a very long time. Uh, 
Katie, I mean, actually, I suppose they're both kind of from the South and, and from the East, but uh, but they both have made their way West and, and lived around, uh, you know, Yosemite and the East Side, live in Bishop now. But I think the main thing is that they both have climbed at a high level and been fixtures in the scene for a very long time. And Ben's a professional photographer, so he's also been shooting climbing for his entire career. Yeah. There's one image that he's taken that I think sums up that sort of awesome adventure style, like that I always think of, and it's, like, describe that that off-width photo from from Patagonia. The central pillar of Pina. Oh, yeah. So cool. Yeah, there's just a photo of, of I think, Sean Villanueva Driscoll uh, climbing an off-width in Patagonia, but it just looks insane. It just looks like the scariest, most... I mean, I can't remember it perfectly, but isn't the rope just sort of arcing out of view <laughs> and, and it's, like, the middle of this giant big wall in the middle of nowhere. It yeah. just looks insane. It's the, the central tower of, uh, of Pine in, in the Torres del Pine, and it just looks amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's just one of those photos that you see it, and you're like, man, I, I wish I could do something like that. It's got good style. Yeah, really, really good style. Here we go. This is Climbing Gold. You want to uh, just start with some basics. Ben and Katie, can you each give your name and basic bio, like how you, long you've been climbing, where you live? I'm Ben Ditto. I live in Bishop, California. I grew up in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Started climbing back there as a wee lad. We had mostly traditional climbing back there when I started. My first leads were all on trad gear with a bunch of old school friends that were great mentors, and they showed me the ropes. And uh my dad was really involved in the process of helping me get started climbing, and my family was all into it. It was a really great little childhood back there. And I was a yearbook photographer when I was in high school, and so that's kind of how I got into photography. And then, and I used to do a lot of competitions with my climbing, and I was I was like a really young competitive climber, and uh, I always did really well up to a certain point. There was this generation, and I was like going to nationals and doing pretty well, and then. Uh, I just remember this one comp where Chris Sharma and Tommy Caldwell showed up out in San Francisco, national championships, and I watched them climb. I looked at my pathetic results, and I just said to my friend, I'm going to have to get a job. This just isn't going to cut it, you know? Like, I'm not going to be able to survive as a pro climber. And so I, I really started to embrace photography after that as a way to make a living. And I have gradually made my way out west after high school and lived in Salt Lake City for about 15 years. And I've had a lot of different types of climbing experience in the places I've lived from, you know, with the early starting of, of trad climbing and then a bunch of sport climbing and ice climbing, mountaineering, and, uh, and then a bunch of expedition climbing, which is something that I really love to do. So uh, now I live here in Bishop and um, I'm just continuing to develop, I suppose. Katie, can you give us your basic bio? I was born in the deep south, southeast Louisiana, and found climbing at the age of 16. And it was kind of one of those things I was like your typical sort of like disgruntled wayward teen. Like I was not resonating with anything. I wasn't interested in school. I was having a hard time at home. And I was sort of like sent to this camp to like get my shit together. And on the tour of the campus, they like took us all around to all the things that you can help facilitate and the very last thing was this wooden climbing wall in the back of the property there that was probably like 30 feet tall and it had two 
like plastic routes going up it and kids were belaying each other and I had never really seen anything like it and was like what is this all about and they're like yeah we do climbing we practice here at the camp and then we go out on these like backpacking trips to climbing around like North Carolina Linville Gorge Asheville area and I was like this is it this is what I want to do and I totally fell in love that summer and basically was a Gumby climber for like the first 10 years of my climbing happened to like meet some other kids at high school that were into it and we were just going out and I had to lie to my parents about where I was going because I was going with these guys and they wouldn't let me go on these like co-ed overnight trips and so I always said I was spending the night at my friend Meredith's house for the weekend and then we were driving like seven to eight hours to go like climbing in Alabama and it really wasn't until I left Louisiana at the age of 24 that I feel like I could stop being a Gumby and climbing. And that was the 90s, so everything was happening in California. Like, if you were a climber in the U.S., California is where you needed to go. And I just had it in my mind that if I wanted to be considered a real climber, I needed to get out here. But, yeah, it's been 27 years that I've been climbing now, and I live here in Bishop, California with Ben. Yeah, that's kind of the gist of it. (laughs) So what does style and climbing mean for you guys? Because, I mean, style and climbing is a huge topic, and I'm curious what that means to you. Like, what do you think of when you hear style and climbing? I guess I think of a few different things. So one, like, what's the best style that you could climb in as far as, like, ethics are concerned? Or, you know, especially if we're talking about free climbing, are you going ground up? Are you aiding? Are you wrapping in? What's the best that you can do with your ability at the time? And maybe it's not always in your mind like the best style and you would like to do it better. And so you could always keep trying to do it better. And then it goes to like, oh, that root, that boulder is not my style. As in like, I only climb slabs or I only climb big things with big dinos. Um, Things that challenge people's kind of physical limits or their psych, I guess, about what they feel they can and can't do or what they're interested in. And then third, it's like actual style. Like, what do you wear when you go climbing? What do you look like? How do you act out there? Yeah, Ben? Well, style is everything, right? And that's what I've heard said. And I mean, a good example of that, I think Alex Lowe is credited with saying, like, the climber having the most fun is the one that wins at the end of the day, you know? And I think that's that's a comment about style. I think as we get into the conversation about style, I think what most people mean when they talk about style is strategy. Like style is a matter of strategic choices that you use in order to get a climb done. Or or sort of adherence to the rules. I mean, what Katie was describing is more like how well do you adhere to a given set of rules that, that the climbing community has foisted upon you? Well, right. Well, we have to choose what rules we're going to stick to as climbers, as an individual sport. Like, have you guys seen this essay called Games Climbers Play? No. Mm, no. Lido Tejada Flores. Do you guys know who that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know the name. I'm, I'm pretty sure I read this essay once upon a time. Alex, they're turning this around on us. They're like quizzing us and yeah. seeing if we're like going to qualify for climbing Jeopardy. Yeah. Don't, don't worry. I got nothing but style. I'm ready. I'm psyched. Yeah. Well, uh, like, Lolito was involved with Yvonne Schnard and all those characters back in the day putting up the Californiana and all that. And he wrote this article about called Games Climbers Play. And he kind of outlines climbing styles in the 60s that were available 
sort of he defines them based on their complexity. And guess which sport, guess guess which style of climbing is the most complex according to this article? Alpinism. Bouldering. Oh. Be- <laughs> because it has it has the most rules. Mm. You know, there are things in bouldering that you can't do in all the other types of climbing. Like you can't use ropes in bouldering, or at least in the 60s you couldn't. So it's just kind of an interesting essay. Like, so this topic's been written about a lot, but I think it's always changing. And, and Leto went back and revised his article like many years later, and he wrote style or just the the way that a climber defines the rules of the game he's playing, you know? And I think that changes for people over time. Royal Robbins was really critical of Warren Harding and his style of climbing and bolting and siege climbing and all that stuff. But then even Royal Robbins went and had to place bolts to be able to climb some of Warren Harding's roots, you know, and kind of had to go back and apologize, you know? So you can even see that back then people's styles evolved. It's kind of what I think of as styles. It's just kind of on a continuum for people throughout the course of their lives and what they're exposed to in their climbing. So, so what do we call good style? You know, like, oh, he did that in good style. Like, what does that mean? I don't know about good style, but I have a good answer for bad style. <laughs> okay, let's hear about bad style. <laughs> <laughs> well, because I think good style can be just about anything somebody's happy with. But I think bad style is when your style of climbing affects someone else's. And so what do I mean by that is basically that Yosemite top-down climbing is like the classic example. And people do top-down climbing on hard routes, big wall free climbing all the time. And I don't see that as necessarily being bad style unless they leave their ropes hanging there, directionalized into the wall. And then people that are climbing up from the bottom have to encounter this stuff and it affects their ascent of the wall. Like, I think that's a really clear example of bad style. So, so impacting, Im- negatively impacting somebody else's experience, you think is always makes it bad style? I think in general, like with that Yosemite example, that's definitely bad style. Yeah, I feel like style is a lot like porn, you know? It's like, you know it when you see it, because there's so many things, if you hear an example, you're like, bad style, <laughs> good style, bad style, good style. Like, I mean, you can know when you hear each example, but it's really hard to codify. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. I mean, there's also like medium style too, where you're like, oh, I could go back and improve upon that person's style, but like I wouldn't necessarily call it bad style. Right. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Because it's sort of like what Ben's saying, even within an individual, your style can change over time. But even in the broader community, I think our style evolves built upon each other in a way. We'll be back with more after the break. I've been a North Face athlete for almost 18 years, which has been incredible, and I've always appreciated their commitment to exploration. Summit Series is the name of the pinnacle North Face products that I use on every expedition, and I love that their tagline is athlete-tested and expedition-proven. I've personally tested these products all over the world, and they've always proven themselves. Future Fleece is the next generation base layer that I wear almost every day of climbing outside, whether on the wall or at the crag. You can shop the full Summit Series collection at thenorthface.com. I was just wondering, should we make this roundtable more interesting by giving personal examples of the worst style in which we've ever climbed something? Oh, God. <laughs> like, like, what are examples of really bad style in, in our personal climbing lives? Lisi, you got a good example? I mean, okay, well... 
recently I climbed on something that's fairly run out and I hadn't been climbing outside in a while. And so I hung a long sling on it and Alex was very upset with me. No, no, um, I wasn't. I wasn't. Well, mostly it was because there was a whole controversy last year or two years ago or whenever when there were a lot of long slings hung on on a very famous sport route. And then a local climber got very upset about the extra slings being added and then took them all off. But then that upset the people who were using the long slings. I mean, that's an interesting example of, you know, style where it's like, well, some people consider it a safety concern, but then somebody else considers it an eyesore and sort of a hindrance to their climbing experience that there's all this extra material on the wall. Yeah. And so then you're like, well, what is good style? And then, I mean, some real traditional purists would consider fixed draws at all to be bad style. And so, of course, we would just consider them Luddites at this point. Right. I but mean, that's just absurd. Style has evolved. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> We're all like, screw that. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that has evolved. Like initially, maybe like 20 years ago, we would have felt the same way. Mm -hmm. Why aren't fixed draws considered pink points? You know, I never really understood that. Like if you pre-place gear in America, it's considered a pink point, but not fixed draws. Yeah. But you know, you go to Australia and climb, they leave fixed gear all over the place and there, and that's just normal. They don't consider that, a, like they don't distinguish well, that's a pink point. Though part of that, I think, is because they're freaking bolts or the stupid Australian carrot bolts where you have to hang your own hanger. Right. And so it basically is the same as placing gear. And so the whole thing is totally different where you're like, this is absurdly annoying to clip the bolts. <laughs> so it's like, of course, right. you're going to leave them fixed. So of course, you're going to leave the gear, too. It's just like I, I randomly found my carrot bolt hangers like in the in the climbing pin the other day. And I was like, I hope people aren't still did, using. Did these you things. immediately throw them away? Because you're like, this is stupid. <laughs> and the ship has <laughs> I sailed. Think, I think I did. Yeah. I was like, I'm never I'm never using that again. Yeah. I didn't get to share my worst style thing because I was like thinking through of it and I've had plenty of bad style, trust me. But like, and this is a funny one to pick, but somebody uh, just recently freed this route I put up 25 years ago. And it was it like I tried it for many years. It was on Prussic Peak way out there. It's like, you know, kind of minimum week long trip back there. And when I, I put it up ground up and I didn't really know how to put up roots at that stage too. And so like, it was super dangerous and I would come back, you know, I was able to drill a few bolts on lead. I think I added one bolt, but at that time, the things I felt were like stylish and cool or like proud were things that were difficult and run out or like that was the sort of style of the, the community. You know, like, I think that that was like, when you thought about routes like that, that's what you wanted to create. And when people in the last five years have come, gone and revisited this, this route, they've called me and be like, dude, this is fucked up can we put some bolts on this? And I'm like, yeah, of course. Cause I remember going back like year after year and being like, God damn old me or like, God damn, like previous me, like what the fuck? Why didn't you, why didn't you deal with this? And it was so funny how at that, even like as I aged, you know, going back five years on this route, I came to realize like what I thought was maybe good style that first year actually produced something that took away from what was actually important about that route which was how difficult the moves were, right? And like how difficult the movements were. Cause it ended up being 514. When I put that up, that would have been one of the hardest trad lines in this country if I'd been able to free it. And which of course I wasn't strong enough then. And I didn't make a route, like the, the style of the thing didn't actually accentuate what was important about it. And it took growing up to kind of realize like, of course you can go put some more bolts in that. Because like, I mean, one, I was probably out of bolts cause I was broke. But two, it was just, you know, it was, and I was hand drilling as a pain in the ass. But it was also, there was that side of, of it, of being like, well, I did this once, you should be able to do it again, even to myself as I projected it. And, you know, that side of it, if I had to come back to it, is, is that there is that, I don't know, it's, it's, 
Style maybe ultimately is how we accentuate the most important part about the experience of climbing for ourselves or even for others in those situations. I guess that sort of takes me to this place where your version of style is something that you were taught where you started climbing, you know? And if you never go out and experience other, another version of what style is, then you might never evolve past that initial understanding. Like if you grow up in Australia climbing and you don't know about pink points and then you come to the States and someone's like, yeah, sorry, you got to pre-place or you got to place the gear while you're climbing, like that might be a shocking revelation to you. I totally apologize to all the Australians out there if I'm botching this explanation of your sport and your culture, but. <laughs> Next, you can give a synopsis of their grading system. You're like, you climb oh, 30 or 32, I don't know, 34, who knows? Though it actually is kind of the simplest system, but nobody uses it. Shots fired. I can tell you about like my worst style. Yeah, let's hear it. It's definitely like a change in usage of the word. It's just that when I started climbing, climbing fashion and climbing style is all about lycra. And I mean, I'm not a big guy, like I'm, I'm pretty thin. And like when I was 13, 14, 15, like I was even thinner. And you can just imagine me walking into the grocery store in like a tank top and like lycra tights after climbing one day or something like that. And the looks I would get in Chattanooga, Tennessee in the mid eighties, you know, it was just freaking hilarious. But those, that's a, a definite example of bad style. I don't well, know. Maybe, what maybe we that's thinking. good style. Is that not good style? That's like, <laughs> I don't what, know a, what, what a statement. <laughs> I don't know where, what we were thinking of, but I definitely got that, that, I, that was what I needed to wear. If I wanted to be a climber, I needed to wear that because that's what people were wearing in the climbing magazines at that point, you know? Right. So in some ways, that kind of style is similar to the rule-based style where it's kind of like, well, if this is the the cultural norm, then I will adhere to this cultural norm, yeah, so. whether that means like the rules of the ascent or the rules of fashion. I mean, that is sort of an interesting overlap in, in these different definitions of style. I like that. That's cool. And that, yeah, I wanted to be accepted as a climber and that's just what people did basically. Yeah, which I mean, as I suppose is the same as, uh, you know, red pointing in the correct way with the correct rules. You're like, okay, I want to look like a climber and I want to behave the correct way by by following the rules correctly. Yeah. I mean, pretty much. I mean, I think that style in this day and age is kind of where the asterisks comes from. Which brings me to like my worst style being definitely an asterisk ascent of father time. What a, let's hear about all the asterisks were there. Yeah, we'll actually break it down. What's an asterisk? It's kind of like, you know, like a note to look at at the end of like the book, right? You're like, oh, uh, a free ascent of father time with an asterisk on pitch 15. You're like, oh, what's that? And then you look and you're like, the asterisk is so something else, like maybe you top roped it or you didn't quite do it or whatever it is. Um, so it's usually, you know, like uh, to call out James Lucas, his ascent of free rider was an asterisk ascent. Because he didn't lower all the way down one pitch. He just went from a rest of one pitch to the top. Come on, Katie. We're <laughs> supposed to be talking about your bad style. So, I, I, so then I don't want to give away my asterisks just yet without like the full story. But father time something that I tried numerous times from the ground, hauling every time, and then would run out of time before I was able to like send all the pitches. And it was like three times of doing that. Because, I mean, I'm not, you know, I I sort of classify myself as a blue-collar climber. Like, I have to work quite hard for things. And I also work quite a bit. So I only have X amount of time very often. So then it would be like eight days on the wall. I didn't send. Now I have to repel. I won't come back till next season. 
So after three times of that, I'm like, fuck, I have to change my approach to this. So I'm going to fix lines leading from the ground and I'm going to leave them here and I'm going to come mini track on them until I can figure this out and then try and come from the ground and red point everything. So Ben and I did that going from the ground. We spent 10 days on the wall, except for the boulder problem pitch. I had red pointed the season before, like successfully Ben belayed me on it. And on this 10 day ascent of father time, I had sent everything on lead, but I still hadn't finished this boulder problem pitch this go. And I must've tried it 12 times. It was kind of warm for me. It was end of June. I didn't send it that go. And I was like, I can't, we can't stay up here. Like we have to go down. So my ascent of father time is that yes, I've red pointed every single pitch on there, except when we did our 10 day push, I did not red point that one pitch. And that's my asterisk. Yeah. That's a big asterisk, which is like, that's, that's for sure. That's for sure. Like the worst style I've ever done anything in. But so are you still content with that, though, where you, in, in your heart you feel like you're done with Father Time and you're like, that's good enough? Yeah, I'm just like, you know what? Like, I'm I'm done with it. That's good enough. Like, I'm pretty happy because the goal was, sure, it's be really sick to do the whole route at once. But I really just wanted to climb those pitches. Katie, you uh, you mentioned that you're, you're a blue collar climbing that you, you know, got to work to make this all happen. What do you what do you do for work? Yeah, I mean, it kind of relates to style in a way. So Ron Kalk and I, back in 2009, along with some other people, started a Yosemite-based nonprofit uh, that essentially works with kids that are labeled like at risk uh, throughout California to bring them into nature, uh, to experience it for themselves, basically. And it really came about through like all of the lessons that we learned from climbing, like what climbing gave us, sort of a sense of place, the appreciation of nature, and that climbing for us wasn't just about getting to the top or succeeding. It like brought us all of these other things. And so being able to take that and share it with kids that might be struggling in whatever facet of society um, they're kind of set up in, whether it's like the Central Valley, they're down in Merced, and it's gnarly down there, and there's nothing interesting, and there's lots of gangs, and they don't have easy access to nature. So getting those kids, bringing them into the park, letting them play around, get to be kids. In 2018, we kind of brought the programming over to Bishop. Since Ben and I were living here, we bought a house and it was, it just made sense. We have so much climbing here. There's kids, even though they live here in the Owens Valley, which you would think they would just have endless access to nature. Very often they don't. They don't have the people to actually bring them to the boulders or bring them to the lake or bring them into the gorge or Pine Creek. And so it, it's pretty simple. We get kids that maybe aren't thriving in the normal situations um, and we take them out of that environment and bring them into these nature places. And we go climbing, fly fishing, hiking, uh, camping, backpacking, etc. And then very often because of the demographic being, you know, labeled at risk, it's a lot of people of color, it's a lot of foster kids, and it's a lot of incarcerated kids. Does, does part of your work with Sacred Rock, is that because of how you got into climbing? Totally. I mean, I don't know where it would be. I've said this a lot. Like, if I hadn't found climbing that year, like, I don't, I don't know how my life would have ended up. Like, I was definitely headed down, like, a very bad track. And all of the adults in my life were just caught up with all of their personal drama and everything that was going on. So no one, there was no one there to be like, you know what, 
she's not doing well in this. We need to like give her something else. I just happened to find it on my own. Yeah, it's cool. I didn't know you guys were doing that in Bishop now. It makes sense here because freaking the, the access is so insane. It's like there's outdoors everywhere. That's cool. We'll be back with more after the break. I first found Coros when I was looking for a GPS watch that could track my biggest outdoor adventures. I needed something with a massive battery life that was also robust enough to handle the climbing. As it turns out, Coros is the only GPS watch brand that has done some serious development for climbers, from multi-bitch GPS tracking to indoor programmed workouts. The watches have a mind-blowing battery life. The Vertex watch series lasts for more than 100 hours in GPS activities, so I only need to charge it once every several weeks. I only need to charge my watch so sporadically that I can never find the charger because I haven't used it in six weeks. (laughs) If you're interested in bringing new technology into your climbing, training, and tracking, you should consider their new Vertex 2S. Go to Coros.com and use the code CLIMBINGGOLD to secure a free watch carabiner with the purchase of your new Vertex 2S. When it comes to like multi-pitching or longer routes in general, there's just more room for like a variety of style. Whereas like sport climbing, bouldering, it seems like we allow for less room within like that style component. Like it, there's a lot more reasons when you're multi-pitching that it makes sense to be like, I did this, but you know, but with a sport climb and a boulder, there's not as many reasons to do that. Yeah, because I mean, mm-hmm. it's such a pain in the ass being like way up on the wall and the hard <clears throat> things like, I don't know, 1500 feet up there or whatever. How many people are you going to get to go with you? How much time do you have? You're not just lowering back to the ground, having a snack and, you know, trying again. It's different. Yeah, yeah the standards change in relation to how easy it is to to enforce those kinds of standards. Like, I feel like with hard bouldering sends nowadays, people sort of expect uncut footage of a send, you know, because it's so easy to just set your phone there and like get the, you know, for cutting edge bouldering. But for sport climbing, that's less the case. And then for big wall climbing, nobody cares at all. And then big wall climbing in the mountains, people are like, you know, as long as you get back to base camp alive, you can just, just say whatever you want about, <laughs> about the ascent you did. It's like basically depending on how hard the overall experiences is, the the standards just just change, which is which I think is understandable. But I've heard I've heard people try to, you know, say with bouldering, like, you know, uh, this side of paradise here in Bishop is a classic one where people have tried like ground up a sense of it rather than wrapping in and rehearsing it first. And, you know, if you do a ground up a sense of it versus having wrapped in and rehearsed it, you want to make sure that everyone knows you did a ground up a sense of it. And so that's this kind of one-upmanship and style where you're going to say on your resume or on your blog or on your Instagram post, I did a ground up a sense of this. And so even bouldering has its nuance in style too in this day and age. And yeah. Yeah, actually, I, I did exactly that this uh, this season in Font. I was in, in Font bouldering for a month, and I was there with Tommy, who had, uh, you know was recovering from a ruptured Achilles. And his goal for the trip was to find boulders tall enough that he could top rope on them without it being too embarrassing, because he basically wanted to top rope, because you know he didn't want to re-rupture his Achilles. But so we, we were like wandering around the forest finding these gigantic boulders to top rope on. And uh, 
but then, you know, and his aspiration was just to top rope him because he's still rehabilitating. But I was kind of like, oh, this is fun. I can top rope with my friend, but then I can try to actually boulder these successfully afterward. But for several of them, the grade of the boulder really seems to go down after you top rope it enough because if the crux is at the top and you can just hang there and figure out exactly how to do it perfectly, you're like, you know, the number probably doesn't really reflect like if you do this perfectly. You know, like I did a couple things where I was like, you know, when you work on this a bit from above, it really is a lot easier, <laughs> which, you know, is definitely bad style as a boulder. But I was like, whatever, I'm not a boulder anyway. I'm just up here practicing and playing with my friends. So I'm like, who cares? You know. Yeah. Well, then that calls into question, like, you know, people say I'm only a boulder or I'm only a sport climber. Or, I'm only a trad climber, which I, I don't ever really want to, like, give people a hard time about their personal preferences in that regard. But I've always found it kind of funny because you're like, well, it's all just rock climbing. Like regardless of what it is, you're just climbing rocks. But they do seem sort of like different sports at times, just because the tactics are so different. And like, you know, I'm more of a sport climber. And so for me, like going to a boulder with 20 pads and a fan is just like, I'm like, what people bring fans to boulders now? Like that's crazy, but it makes sense. And you know, it's, yeah. You mean you, you don't you don't carry a ladder and a fan to the sport crag every day? I do not. <laughs> That's so weird. Are you guys in the know about people using laser pointers at the crag? Yes, yeah. I've seen that. This is new to me. I was just in 10 sleep and I saw it quite a bit and I was just sort of blown away. By that. That's, that's been around a long time. I've seen people doing that like 10 years ago in Maple and, and random places. Yeah. But it's just, I still feel like it's a little niche. It's you know, like niche how many people for want sure. a laser point. Um, especially, uh, so then here's something too about style. Like people were doing that at 10 Sleep. People would be across the crag, shining their laser pointer at the holds for someone's flash go, essentially. But then they would call it an on site. Wait. What? How is that an on site? It's, yeah, that's, it's not. But I mean, that was just like. But that's but that's misunderstanding the terms. I think I think yeah. that's somebody like not. I mean, we actually had a conversation about this on Climbing Gold recently, talking about lying and climbing. I, I try not to judge somebody if they honestly don't know the rules or don't understand the the definitions of the the terms and things like that. Because you're like, you know, everyone's just learning. But you're gonna definitively say that using a laser pointer does not count. As on, as on yeah, yeah, no yeah that's for sure. But it, but it totally counts for flashing because I mean, flashing is such a big, broad gray area because yeah. sometimes flashing, you've already like lowered down the route from something nearby and like looked at it and maybe even touched some of the holes or like brushed all the holes or chalked them or done whatever. Yeah. So I mean, flashing can range from like somebody just gave you some rough beta for the crux to like you have touched every single hold and like thought about it on your way down. And you're kind of like, well, that's a huge spectrum. It's like, yeah. I think a laser pointer fits well within there. I think it's interesting. There's all these like new terms. I'm sure you guys have heard them that maybe even intensely, probably intensely, um, that are like evolving in the sport. Like I hear day flash a lot at the crag now. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, what does that mean? <laughs> does that mean doing it in one day? Yeah, but maybe you've also tried it before is my yeah. understanding of it. It's like you tried it last week and then today you got the day flash of it. Yeah, like you did it on your first try of the day, basically. Yeah, I'm not into that. <laughs> that's that's confusing but i mean just like even thinking of 10 sleep like i feel like different crags and places have their own style too right like that's an interesting thing about our sport is like you know what you're gonna get when you go to 10 sleep you're probably gonna do the hardest thing you've ever done and it's gonna be great and, and you're gonna feel completely safe the entire time yeah <laughs> yeah. Like, wow, yeah i got a bolt clipped in my knee while i do the crux yeah this is so casual yeah 
but you'll have a totally different experience at the VRG, you know? Well, where, where's our sport heading? Like, I mean, thought, just a little thought experiment. If you were from another planet and you arrived here and you knew nothing about football, would football be as hard for you to understand as the rules of climbing? Like, no, I, th- I think that climbing is, is fundamentally easier to understand than, than many other sports because at the end of the day, you're trying to get from the bottom to the top of something. And, and yeah, you can kind of split hairs and, and get into the rules and everything, but ultimately you're just trying to climb up a face. And, and certainly at its, at its purest, climbing is pretty understandable, you know, in the same way that hiking or whatever else is. You're trying to travel over a certain type of terrain. I have a question for you all. Certain climbers also, Katie, you brought it up, like there's, you know, the style of climbing you do, you know, sort of the style you do it in. And then there's also certain climbers have style. And I'm curious, um, for me, the first time I sort of became aware of a climber having style was being in a gym and like seeing the old Dan Osmond poster, the No Fear one, where he's like doing the full full body flag soloing Atlantis on the needles and like the poster says like reality is in fact virtual I have no which I don't even know what that means (laughs) um you know I remember the masters of stone video where he's like jumping up bear's reach and just you know like uh cutting the cutting the wires off the nuts so that he can take the epic whipper on the rostrum or the excellent I think it was on the rostrum rostrum like just all that like that was the first time I ever saw a climber was like that person has style. I wasn't sure if that was like a good style <laughs> or not, but like that's what I clearly became aware of that. And I'm curious like whether, you know, do you guys remember the first climber that you were like, that is really cool style or weird style or whatever made you think, but someone who had that. How does he say that? Je ne sais quoi? I could say where I grew up, it was kind of isolated from the you know, larger climbing industry or world at that point, climbing culture. And so we relied on like climbing magazines and climbing films. And for me, a huge one was moving over stone. And the way that Doug Robinson talked about being outside and climbing and moving over stone and having it be a meditation and just the feelings he got from it, just the way he talked about it in that movie, I I really appreciated his style and what he brought to climbing. At, At the other end of the spectrum, I think uh, Chris Sharma, to me, maybe exemplified good style as a climber or, or distinctive style anyway, because I feel like I grew up watching Rampage and Dosages and, you know, all the, the sort of classic Chris Sharma films, and he just moves so distinctly on rock, and he's so uniquely himself. You're like, oh, that's <laughs> like like watching Chris Sharma do three degrees of separation. You're like, that's freaking style, or like a very particular way of moving on rock. So I think that's certainly was the first thing that I grew up with where I was like, that is is a distinct way to climb. Yeah, I think for me, it's two kind of people. One, Catherine Desteville, for sure. I was just blown away by her. I remember watching uh, her solo, The Old Man of Hoy, and I was just like, and she was just so like feminine and almost like sexy. And she's like climbing this tower and there's like birds and it seems so gnarly. And she's just like so casual about it. And that to this day is something that I think about like emulating when I'm climbing, like to just be like really calm and casual, like Catherine Deceville. The other one that was really kind of noteworthy for me, which I was just talking to Ben about the other day is Jim Thornburg's photo of Tiffany Levine Campbell. I think it was on the cover of Rock and Ice, maybe it was climbing and she's climbing in the needles and she's just jacked. And I don't remember what route she's on, but like it's all lycrid out and the lichen and the needles is just electric and the wind's blowing her hair and she's like on this undercling and her biceps all huge and i was just like that's fucking style 
That's, that was the picture that inspired you to take a weightlifting. Yeah. <laughs> like, I want to be like, Tiffany yeah. Campbell. They're like, can I deadlift 700 pounds? They're like, I probably should be able to. Lisi? <laughs> like, I think for me, um, when I first started climbing, I was really obsessed with Steph Davis. I just felt like she, her love for the sport just felt so pure to me. And I just really admired her for some reason. I don't know. I just thought she was like doing things really differently from a lot of other women in the sport. And just, I don't know, it it just struck me that I wanted to like appreciate and value the sport in the same way that Steph did for some reason. Can I just throw out, it's, it's funny, you always hear the uh, the saying that representation matters. And I'm like, you know, this is a perfect example of why it matters. Because Katie just came up with two examples of strong women that inspired her to climb in certain ways. And you have Steph Davis, a woman that inspired you to climb. And then Ben and I came up with like random dudes that inspired us to climb in certain ways. And you're like, yeah, I suppose this is why it's important for people to find the type of climbing heroes that resonate with them in the in the best way. You know, it's like, yeah, like it makes sense that you're not going to be quite as inspired by Chris Sharma because you're like half his size. And yeah, I'm just, just like, that's like totally irrelevant <laughs> yeah. to me. Yeah, yeah, totally. It's well, just yeah. Not jam. yeah, yeah. And it's cool. It's like, it's not that it's not inspiring. It's just that it's like you have a hard time seeing yourself. Seeing yourself in it. Totally. In it. Yeah. 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 Whereas for yeah. me, I'm like, oh, we're both kids from Northern California. We grew up going to the same gym that I like competed at his gym, you know, when I was a kid that he was a little older, but still it's like, it all just feels closer. You're like, oh, this is this is something I can look up to and like really appreciate. Yeah, for sure. And I mean, I would say here, like working a lot with the native kids and getting them into climbing and having some of those kids like really thrive in climbing and be successful and do it for years. And then we bring in some new kids, younger kids, and they see these older native kids like climbing really well and it gets them super psyched. It gets them more psyched than if they see me or someone that doesn't look like them climb. Mm-hmm. Which is totally makes sense. Yeah. So like, if they can do it, then I can do it. Totally. So Ben, you've just gotten back from hanging out with Nico and Sean, the Belgians, the Dodos. You were up in Greenland in an incredibly wild place. You took a trip where you basically did it via sailboat and then you did this massive approach. It's pretty incredible, super cool style, super burly. Um, and Alex had actually been in the same zone uh, the year before. And I just, yeah, tell us about that trip because the trips you've taken with with Sean and Nico, they're super inspiring to a lot of people. And we'd love to hear a little bit more about it. So on this trip, there were seven of us. Sean, Nico, Franco Cookson is a strong young climber from North Wales. And then Skipper Mike, who owned the boat Cornelia that we were on, and the first mate, Sean Beecher. And then Captain Reverend Bob Shepton, who was the owner and skipper of the Dodo's Delight. He's now 88, and he came along with us. And um, these sailboat climbing expeditions to go to the Arctic are really uncertain because of the pack ice that you encounter out there. And I don't mean icebergs that fall off glaciers and float in the water. I mean that the surface of the ocean freezes. The thickness of that ice on the surface is forecasted by the Danish Meteorological Institute. And you can get on their website and you can look at these ice charts. And so we're just glued to the ice charts for weeks as we're popping around little villages in the north coast of Iceland trying to find climbing to do and ways to entertain ourselves. And finally, we get a good ice forecast. We know that we can get up to the 71st parallel 
We're going to sail to this little village called Itokortimit. Our ultimate destination is another, I want to estimate 190 miles further in to the continent or island. You know, Scoresby Sound is, is the fjord where we were, and it's enormous. And when you look at it from the satellite, it looks like the like the shape of a giant tree where the the mouth of Scoresby Sound is like the trunk. And then there's all these tendrils of branches going back into the ice cap and everything. And I'm pretty sure it's the largest and deepest fjord in the world. Yeah. I mean, it's huge. It's like it's, it's a whole ocean in and of itself, basically. It's like this yeah. huge inlet into Greenland. There was like one forecast for getting to Itokortimit and then another forecast for getting from Ito into the fjord where we wanted to get to where... We, we managed to get there, but I mean, all of this is very adventurous and we're just complete uncertainty. And if you see some of the drone photos from when we were sailing in, it's just, you look at it, at the, all of the ice on the surface and you see the tiny little boat and you're like, how can you ever sail a boat through that chaos? You know, and it's just, it's just very, going very slow, weaving in and out. There's all these people stationed at the helm. And then at the, wait, what are uh, the parts of boats called? Um, we have the, the stern is the back. The helm is where yeah. you steer. And um, the bow. The bow. Yeah. Thank you. Can we omit that part from the yeah. podcast? Um, <laughs> no, no, that's, that's definitely going in. After you spent two months on a boat, you're like, wait, what's the front called? <laughs> well, actually, like probably almost a year on these boats now after all these trips. But but yeah, and I, I'll just go ahead and say port is left and starboard is right, you know, as you're facing forward. So <laughs> finally, we do get stuck. You know, we're up for 24 hours all the time. It's just amazing light all the time, 24 hours of daylight. And then we finally do just auger in at one point to this ice that's just impenetrable and have to sort of sit there just drifting, no anchor or anything. But like the sun is warm enough during a warm moment, we managed to get out and find our way through and and we're able to arrive at the anchorage, which put us in at a base camp, which I think you guys hellied into. And yeah. And you just see all this moraine and then all this glacier. And I mean, the maps are crude at best, you know, and the satellite imagery is all chopped up there. Like all the map layers for that area, they all seem to just be stitched together and there's no one clear picture of the zone. And so it was all pretty confusing. So we started flying the drone and trying to look around for like clear passage, but ultimately you just had to go for it. And so basically every step of the way, just completely immersed like drowning in adventure, you know, and and when I say that, I mean uncertainty. We wound up in retrospect, just in the worst place of the worst glacier or of the worst moraine, you know, and ultimately Nico fell in this frozen pool in this crevasse within the moraine and got this big cut on his leg. And this was our first day of approaching the mountain. And we were under the impression that we could probably make it in a, in a long day, you know? That is so crazy. I would have told you like five, you know, I mean, we, <laughs> we did like four or five days and it was like, it, yeah, it was so broken up. Yeah. But I, it, we were in the impression that we could push it in a long day. And so we were kind of going for it in that vein. And, and we had planned and we were, we we're kind of on this recon mission slash carry a bunch of stuff out there. And it all came to a halt. Nico hurt his leg. He's got this cut. It's a gash. You know, I'm a, I'm on the search and rescue team here. I have like first responder medical training. I'm wrapping up his leg and it's clear that he needs like several stitches 
And that's it. Like this, this tiniest little accident just stopped our progress. Like we were done. We were dead in the water, you know, and, and we had to basically turn around and go back to camp without making it to the wall. And it really put a, a big change in our, the dynamic of our group because suddenly, you know, arguably like the top guy is now out of the picture. He needs medical treatment, medical treatment that he can't really get where we are. And so he's basically just got his leg wrapped up. But tell you what, Franco, his motivation was just unflagging. Like Sean and I were freaking worked. Like we took a rest day. Franco packed up a biggest backpack I've ever seen. And <laughs> him and Skipper Mike, Skipper Mike came to our rescue. And even like the Skipper and Franco started carrying loads out past the first glacier and to the desert camp, like to these big boulders that we found in the desert and we could stash gear. And Franco did like the next like 30 days without stopping. Like Sean and I took that rest day and that was our only rest day for the whole rest of the month. But Franco did every day. And so then, so the three of us were just like, I mean, we didn't even really discuss it that much. We just started carrying loads out there and we were committed as a threesome to just like going out to the mirror wall and climbing this thing. But bringing it back to style, actually, I mean, this is the weird thing with sort of like human power descent and something that Tommy and I grappled with a lot this summer because we bike toured to Alaska, but it was for a TV show. And so there's like, oh, you know, what we're doing is human powered, sort of, but we're supported. And then there are like film people flying up and filming and like using helicopters and using planes and whatever. And so you're kind of like, oh, it's a human powered ascent, but it starts to feel like a little bit contrived because there's so many other moving pieces around your, your ascent. And, and ultimately, it always just comes back to, I mean, even like what you guys are doing with the sailboat and sailing there, it's like, it comes down to a personal choice. Like, oh, I'm going to do this thing because I'm accepting this level of challenge. But if it gets too bad, you kind of know that there's always modernity, like one call away. It's like you still have a satellite phone. You can still basically get a helicopter to you soon, if not immediately. And it's like, that that's the weird thing with style nowadays is that it's all kind of choices around like what you're choosing to do as an adventure, but it's very rarely required. You know, it's like you can always just use fossil fuels. You can always like get in the plane, get in the helicopter. It's like, you know, even on the biggest mountains now, even 8,000 meter peaks, you know, it's like you can get picked up by helicopter at like Camp 4 on Everest. It's like there just is rescue available almost anywhere on earth now, if the weather permits. You're kind of like, no matter how you choose to do your style, you know, the, I don't know, the world has shrunk a little bit. It makes it feel a little more contrived. Ben, I'm curious, like, what was the end result of, of all that epicness? Like, did, did you guys actually succeed on the wall? I mean, we K- made Katie it back home. Katie starts to cry. Katie's like, <laughs> yeah. sad, I mean, sad. I mean, if people have asked me, uh, did you guys succeed? And I say, well, we made it back home. You know what I mean? And I think that's the best metric for success. Well, I like what you said the other day, like your tongue-in-cheek response. What was that? That you guys came really, really close to making it halfway up the wall. (laughs) 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 Right, that is true. I mean, so after all that, we finished, as a threesome, we finished our carries. And, you know, we got all our stuff to the base of the wall. We fixed all our statics up the wall. And then we we went back to our advanced base camp to kind of regroup. And then we were going to commit up onto the wall the very next day. But I mean, we just, we started climbing this wall. And at the end of the day, we had about two weeks to climb. We really needed a month. Like once all the logistics were done, the load carrying, the waiting on the ice, we just didn't really have enough time to climb it. 
part of the Belgians take on style is that they don't do a ton of research. Like there's no binder full of Xerox copied topos from previous expeditions or anything like that. Like they don't really care. They're just going to go out there and make it work, you know. I mean, we did know that some Swiss guys had established two routes up the periphery and that Leo Holding and his team had established this route called Reflections on the left side that takes like a particular dog leg up about two thirds height. Like, cause his line was gonna intersect the ridge where the other guys had climbed. And it seemed like in order to stay on the mirror wall proper, they did some aid climbing out to the right and then some aid climbing to go up. And we, we did know about that stuff, but we didn't really understand like the severity of the wall. And so, but but this Sean, is kind of a, this is kind of a question of style, though. Like, is it better style to have no idea what's going on? Like, you know, that's the whole thing is that that often, you know, style is considered like having the big adventure and like being pure. But sometimes that just means being wildly underprepared. And like, is it better style to to have no idea? When I've climbed with these guys, we're not making decisions based on whether this is good style or not. We're doing, we're making decisions based on this is the experience we want to have. Yeah. Well, actually, and, and I don't think the Belgians are necessarily choosing a style, but I think it's interesting because the rest of the climbing community, myself included, hold them up on a pillar is like, that's good style. But you're kind of like, is that good style or is that just like wildly unprepared adventure mode? You know, it's like, like, is it actually cooler to just go bumbling out there and just have a crazy experience and then make it work? I mean, I think that's cool. Like, I like that. And I, and I do that myself sometimes. But it's interesting that as a climbing community, we embrace that as an example of good style. Like, is that actually better? Well, I think it's interesting because it might be better. Like we might think of it as better style for people that are more experienced. But if, you know, we hear about people that are unexperienced doing that, we would maybe be more judgmental of that style. What I can say is that uh, if you've ever done a big wall first ascent in the middle of nowhere, which not that many have, I guess, but... <laughs> There's always this moment where you're at the bottom looking up and you're trying to figure out where the hell to go. Like, what line are we going to do? How are we going to decide this? You know, and it's kind of an awkward moment. And the three of us, Franco, Sean and I, we had a couple of different options picked out. And it was clear that like, if we were going to try to do a new route, that this was going to be really futuristic stuff. Like that wall is blank. Um, and of course, Sean wanted to do a new route. I was a little bit more on the fence. I wanted to get to the top of the wall. I was just kind of like, this seems insane to go up this blank section of wall. What if we go up Leo's rig and try to free it and maybe even tie it into the original route and create a completely free route? And, uh, Sean looks at me and he just says, I think that's too much of a sure thing. You know what I mean? So he, he was just not going to go up something that seemed like we would definitely climb. Like he wanted the challenge of the uncertainty in order to be interested in it. And I, I think that's interesting, even from a sport climbing perspective, to be interesting, it has to be almost impossible. Like so close to impossible that it's, you don't know until you're right there trying the moves, you know? Think about how even 14A, in some cases, you're like you're like one hold away from it not being doable. And I think that's those guys kind of apply that in this other standard. Like they want the challenge for their own experience. And if the world decides that that's good style, that's awesome.
Thank you, Katie and Ben, for joining the show. To check out some of Ben's images, you can give him a follow on Instagram at Benjamin Ditto. And for that matter, follow Katie as well at Katie Bird Lambert. Keep it styly out there. Climbing Gold is a production of Duct Tape and Beer. Alex Honnold is our host. Today's show was produced by Marker Seiler Gonzalez and me, Fitzcahal. Additional editing and mix and mastering by Evan Phillips. Music by Brennan O'Connell. Our YouTube and social media editor is Skylar Perwitz. Our executive producers are Jonathan Retzik and Ben Endy for RxR Sports and Lisey Hendricks and Becca Cahal for Duct Tape and Beer. Thanks for listening.